And greetings and welcome to Buzz for Good, where we talk all things nonprofit, the people they serve, and the good they do. And on today's show, we highlight a nonprofit whose mission is to help families of individuals who are behind bars, turning corrections into connections. We're also going to spotlight a recent episode of our TV show, Buzz, that stars the amazing arts programs in Roanoke City Public Schools. And we invite you to join us February 7th at the Grandin Theater for a watch party of our 2021 episode on the Christiansburg Institute in hopes that you will be inspired to support their cause. I am Michael Hemphill, creator and host of both this radio show and the TV show Buzz, where we feature all of the great work that nonprofits do throughout our communities, as well as the marketing professionals affiliated with the American Advertising Federation of Roanoke, who donate their time and talent to help these nonprofits achieve more buzz. You can find out more through our website, buzzforgood.com. That's buzz, B-U-Z-Z, number four, good.com, as well as our social media, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, and YouTube, all at Buzz for Good. Uh, once again, a reminder that we have shared over the last two weeks that January is National Blood Donor Month, so please make time to give the gift of life with the gift of your blood. Find a drive near you through the American Red Cross of Southwest Virginia, and you can hear my recent conversation with the Red Cross Executive Director, Jackie Grant, by visiting our website and looking under podcast. Now, starting off today's show, I thankfully have not had a family member yet convicted of a crime and punished with jail time, though the jury is still out on my youngest daughter. But for those who have, the sentence not only impacts the life of the one serving the time, but the lives and the finances of his or her loved ones. From $4 a minute phone calls and pricey snacks and food and toiletries and on and on, the bills can quickly rack up for families who want to stay connected and help their incarcerated relatives. Deanna Cox learned too well the financial burden of our country's correctional system out of an anguished personal story involving her son, and she is committed to helping other families through her nonprofit, Inmate Family Assistance of the New River Valley. All right, well, it is my pleasure to welcome to the show Deanna Cox, who is director of Inmate Family Assistance of the New River Valley. Deanna, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, so uh, we had the good fortune of meeting at 100 Plus Women Who Care of the New River Valley uh, a few weeks ago, uh, where I went and kind of presented uh, Buzz for Good to your organization. It was a wonderful experience. And out of that, got to meet you. And I appreciate you reaching out uh, to find out how perhaps Buzz for Good can share more about the work that Inmate Family Assistance of the New River Valley does uh, throughout the region. And I'd like to kind of start with, why should we care about people who commit crimes? Well, there are probably a lot of reasons for that, but but one of the reasons that we have um, created our organization in the form that it exists, um, if you'll notice, by the name, it's called Inmate Family Assistance. And so our real motive is to try to assist families of people who are incarcerated, um, you know, maintain communication with their loved ones who are in jail and um, help fund their commissary accounts um, for hygiene purposes or for extra food. Um, but the, the key thing being that I think people forget that when somebody makes a mistake and goes to jail, Figuratively speaking, the whole family goes to jail. And mm -hmm. um, a lot of families can't afford these sometimes exorbitant, you know, telephone costs, um, depending on the facility and the um, cost for, you know, commissary for inmates, which is how they get their hygiene items and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Um, describe, I mean, the, the economic toll that it takes on families having some a, a loved one who is incarcerated i mean obviously there's the physical separation there's the emotional separation the emotional loss uh but you know talk about the 
how much it actually costs financially to have someone incarcerated? Well, depending on the facility, you know, the telephone costs can be pretty high. Um, most, and I've only had experience with the regional and local jails in mm -hmm. our area, but um, each facility contracts with potentially different vendors that supply the telephone um, opportunities for inmates. And I think, um, you know, we had one that charged upwards of four um, dollars a minute. Four dollars a minute. Yes, and yeah. then um, and, and then some like the Montgomery County Jail. Theirs are more reasonable, mm -hmm. um, but but as you can tell, you know, if you want to stay in contact with your loved one who's incarcerated, um, at four dollars a minute, you talk for ten minutes. Um, it doesn't seem like that much, but you know, jail isn't really a safe place, and and families want a level of comfort in knowing that their loved one is still okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so maybe you don't have to talk to them every day or once a week, but it sure does make you feel better to um, be able to do that. So, so the telephone costs can be pretty extensive um, depending on the facility. And then from our experience, the, the jails for, and in my experience it was like an adult male is that um, they don't really serve them enough food like they get they get three meals a day, mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily not necessarily enough. And so they can supplement their meals with commissary items. Yeah. So um, that's an additional expense. And if they want regular hygiene items, that's something else that they have to buy through commissary, which um, could cost a family, you know, 20, 30 dollars a week. So depending on what the needs of the inmate are. Mm -hmm. So for a family that doesn't have anything, those costs are pretty high, not to mention that the person who's incarcerated before they went to jail were probably a contributing member to the family's finances, you know, at that point. So um, they've lost income. Now they're having to pay money out. Mm -hmm. All right. I want to come back to this later on in our conversation, but I want to kind of state up front here. Or I want you to state up front here. Uh, you have a direct knowledge and experience with this issue, which is what kind of led you to found this nonprofit. Would you mind sharing your personal story? Not at all. Um, our personal story, unfortunately, started in 2016 when um, our then 18-year-old son um, got his first DUI. Um, he got a DUI and a, a looting because he ran. Um I don't recommend either of those. Right. And in April of the next year, 2017, he did a repeat of that um, DUI and eluding police. That one resulted in a felony conviction for eluding the police. And then the next year in um, 2018, he got his third and hopefully final DUI. Mm. Um, at least he stopped this time. Mm -hmm. And as a result of, of all those, and, and I'll have uh, say also that my son is an alcoholic. Um, at this point, as we're having this conversation, he is a recovering alcoholic. He's working on his sobriety and um, has been sober for, I guess, a little over a year now. Mm, um, so I'm hopeful that, that that's changing. But, yeah. but because of all of those, you know, um, mistakes that he made, he spent probably a year and a half in the local jail here, Montgomery County Jail. He spent um, probably close to a year in a jail in Orange County. So he was a good ways away mm. um, where visitation was one day a week for two hours. And so it was really prohibitive to go up in the middle of a day um, once a week to visit him there. And then he spent some time at Western Virginia um, jail. So, so we've had a pretty thorough experience of um, having a loved one incarcerated in our local yeah. and regional jails. And um, it's certainly a, an experience um, learning how to navigate the correctional system. Um, and it, really it was through his experience in being there, like when he finally got out, he mentioned to us that there were a lot of <clears throat> a lot of people he was in jail with that 
um, whose families weren't able to support them while they were in jail. They didn't have the money even for telephone or any commissary or anything. So, you know, there were people that would go weeks at a time with no communication with their families. Um, they could write letters, but you need money for postage as well. Mm. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, it, it got me thinking, um, you know, through our experience and how important it was for us to be able to continue to communicate with him while he was away, um, how it might be a good thing for other people who can't, don't have the means right. to be able to, to communicate with their loved ones while they're incarcerated. And I think people forget that, you know, the families are affected, but they're not the ones that made a mistake. You know, they didn't do anything wrong typically. Yeah. And um, I think people forget that they're, you know, there's sure there's this person in jail made some mistakes and um, they should pay for that. But we forget the effect that it has on the people around them. And so I guess it's kind of what we're trying to to remedy is try to make that a little easier for those of us who end up in this kind of um, circular, you know, thing, trying to navigate the correctional system and, um, you know, to no fault of our own. Kind of yeah. Thing. Right. Right. I mean, even, you know, our kids, they get to be a certain age and they are adults. And I'm sure you probably felt uh, as all parents would a certain sense of maybe some, some guilt or responsibility for, you know, what, what happened that led our child to make these bad decisions or, or have these addictions. Uh, thankfully he is hopefully on the other end of that, but still I, you know, it is uh everybody's affected when it comes to something like this in a family. Yeah, they are. And I think, you know, <clears throat> I think a lot of people make, you know, when, when children, even adult children get into trouble and I think people do make assumptions about your parenting. And um, I've probably been guilty of that in the past myself. Mm -hmm. um, but I certainly feel a little differently about it now because um, I'm sure we made mistakes in raising our son, but we certainly did what we thought was the right thing and, right. Um, you know, tried to hold him accountable. But, you know, people are are born with their own personalities and um, genetic makeup. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's things, there are things that are outside of your control. And, and then once things happen, then you just have to try to figure out how to deal with them the best you can. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're talking about, you know, the cost of phone calls and, and postage and, you know, uh, visits. How important is it for someone who is incarcerated for you know, their rehabilitation? Is it to maintain I, those family connections? I mean, I think it's it's you know imperative that people yeah. maintain those corrections. I mean, I mean those connections. Um, I don't, you know, I think that just from my son's experience, it's a very isolating experience to be in jail. I mean, you're in there with a lot of people, mm -hmm. but they aren't people that you know well. Um, and you're away from all the people that you do know well. And so I think that that separation in itself is harmful. And I know, you know, there's supposed to be a punishment element and that's, sure. you know, important. But I think if we want people to, you know, learn from a mistake and move forward. Um, and it took my son a few tries to, to learn, but, you know, when you factor in addiction and um, other substance abuse issues that kind of puts a kink in it, but, um, but I do think it's imperative for their rehabilitation, for them to maintain contact with their support systems. I don't, I think, you know, it, it'd be nearly impossible for them to do anything differently without that. Yeah. Well, once again, here on Bus for Good, talking to Deanna Cox, who is the director of Inmate Family Assistance of the New River Valley. And, you know, we're talking about that when someone gets incarcerated, it is not just him or her who is impacted, but their family members. And the cost of that incarceration often gets dumped on, uh, on the families. Uh, you know, we, when we think of someone who has to spend time in jail, due to a crime you know we think about the uh again the isolation but 
I mean, the 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 financial burden that uh, families have to undergo in order to try to provide you know their child or their loved one with you know some communication with hygiene with be- better food. It seems as though what I'm hearing you saying is that our correctional system is almost designed to further punish someone once they are in. Um, I would say that's a correct assessment. <laughs> mm. Mm. And we don't think about those costs, you know, so someone who has to serve six months, well, we think, okay, well, you know, they're, they're going to receive all the, you know, the actual daily needs that they have. They'll, they'll receive those as part of their punishment, but not really. And that's where your organization comes in. Right. For those people that, you know, if you, if you've got money, then you can afford, you know, those things for your family member. Mm-hmm. Um, but for people who are indigent, you know, those things are, are pretty out of reach. And, um, and I think, you know, a lot of times the, the correctional system is, is not really designed to be helpful. I will say that, you know, Montgomery County jail, who has been so wonderful about letting us, um, start our program in their facility and has supported it for three years. Hmm. Um, they have, they have really, um, I mean, we wouldn't, we wouldn't still be in operation if they hadn't kind of gotten behind us and, and really helped us with eligibility and everything else. Um, so I will say that, that they have taken a step to make it possible for an organization like ours to help people that need a hand up with that. And, um, instead of, you know, being unhelpful, like some of the larger facilities, I think they just, you know, they're just too big to, to put something like this into play. But at the same time, I mean, there's no reason at all why a phone call should cost $4 a minute. That, no. that that is just additional punishment. That's just a money-making scheme that certain correctional centers seem to have instituted to pad their budgets. Well, it's, you know, it, the correctional system in, is, in general is a money-making, a money-making deal. Um, and you know, the, the vendors, you know, they, they don't have total control over what the vendors charge, but, um, but I'm sure that they know what the vendors are going to charge when they, they enter into a contract. Mm -hmm. Um, but it definitely is, you know, uh, a lot of businesses are making a lot of money off of the backs of people who have made mistakes. Yeah. And, and I know, you know, go ahead. No, so I want to get to, you know, the real meat of what you guys do, but before we get to there, uh, were you able, ever able to calculate the total cost of your son's incarcerations to you and your, you know, your family? Um, I mean, just for the, just for the incarceration piece and supporting him while he was there. I mean, it was probably thousands of dollars. Um, for the phone calls know, and the high, for phone calls and products, the food. Yes, for everything. And, and, you know, we had, we were, we had the means, so we Mm -hmm. probably were able to spend more than, than some families were, but, um, but it it was expensive. And then, you know, don't even get into the whole, um, what people have to pay for bond and (laughs) attorney's fees. And I mean, then, then we're talking a whole lot more money, but, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of money for a family that doesn't have a lot to begin with. Yeah. And this isn't even factoring in the lost income of that family member who, you know, can't work, is not drawing a salary or wages or, you know, some other way to make a living. So, right. Right. Uh, Once again, here with Deanna Cox, Director of Inmate Family Assistance of the New River Valley. So talk about how your operation works. Uh, You receive money from donations, I would assume. I am I am the director. Um, I have three other board members and all of us are completely volunteer. Um, So everything, everything that's done for the organization is done with volunteer time. We've participated um, two years in the Give Local NRV campaign. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we've raised money from local donors. um, And then 
uh, January of 2021, we were awarded the 100 plus women who care um, quarterly grant. So um, that was a huge boost that that kept us afloat for a whole year almost. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're 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 always looking for um, for support. Um, it, and and as you've mentioned several times so far, it's this is not like an easy sell. Um, you know, yeah. you said why why do people why should we help people who are in jail? And you know, we're helping people in jail, but we're helping their families too. And also people make mistakes. And I, I believe in second chances <laughs> in my son's case, second mm-hmm. and third chances. But, um, but I think that people, most people are redeemable and the people that we're working with in the local and regional jails typically are not, you know, hardened criminals. They're people who've made st- mistakes. They have substance abuse issues. And, um, and I think, you know, to condemn them to, um, the status of never being worth helping is is not a good thing for humankind, in my opinion. But yeah. Um, but what we do for for the people that need help is um, with the donations that we get, we fund an inmate's account forty dollars a month if they're eligible. And two years ago, the jail um, offered to help determine eligibility using their indigent criteria. So. Um, I'm able to send them a list of requests and I usually do it now once a week. And um, if an inmate is eligible, then we will put the $40 on their books, as you call it, or on their account. Mm-hmm. And they can use that for telephone calls, for hygiene items, um, and for extra food. Is that about the average cost? How do you, how do you arrive at $40 a month? Um, Based on our experience, that is enough to get you some supplemental food and to make a couple of phone calls a week. Um, and it was also an amount that I felt was sustainable yeah. for an organization our size. Because I didn't want to start out with a big amount and then run out of money and not be able to help anybody else. Sure. So that's kind of where I came up with the $40 figure. So, so about how many families does that help a year? Um, well, let's see, we have helped about 260 families in three years. So. Wow. Whatever that calculates to. Sure. Sure. Uh, besides your son's case, uh, any success stories that you'd like to share? Well, I, I will say that we've gotten a lot of positive feedback from people. Um, you know, we, we, when I first started, I was, you know, even having been through this process of having somebody in the correctional um, system, I was, I was just still like surprised at the stories. And I was getting calls from grandparents who were taking care of their three, you know, young grandchildren because their adult child was incarcerated Mm -hmm. and they were both on disability and, had no money to put on their books for telephones. So the children weren't able to talk to the father. And um, so, you know, our ability to fund his account with $40 gave them the ability to have those conversations and and let the children talk to a parent. Um, I had, I had um, teenagers calling to get funding for their parents. Um, I had a guy that wrote to me, an inmate that wrote to me and was at the Montgomery County Jail and had not had any any funds for over a year. And he had a daughter who he hadn't been able to be in contact with because she was in foster care through social services. Mm. And um, because of our money, he was able to contact social services and finally arrange a time where he could talk to his daughter. So... You know, it's things like that that make me feel like, you know, it's something we should do. Yeah. Yeah. It's What's the criteria that you use to establish, you know, who gets money? Well, the jail's indigent criteria is that an inmate um, has to have less than $10 on their account mm-hmm. and can't have received any money or care packages in seven days. Okay. So we just we had since that's something that they have the information for, we just adopted that for our eligibility mm. requirement. Right. 
are there any restrictions on the uh, the type of inmate that you serve? You know, it's like no. It's, okay, so all, all no, I don't all misdemeanors. Um, no, I don't. I don't even check. And and if it was only misdemeanors, they probably wouldn't be in jail anyway. But knowing what my son's felonies are, or felony, he has one felony, but um, what some of the felony convictions are for, I'm a little less frightened of that than probably the average person. Um, but no, I don't. I don't even check. <clears throat> And as I said, in the local and regional jails, they don't keep people long there who, you know, they might have somebody that um, was accused of murder where they have them overnight before they get transferred to another facility. Yeah. Um, so most of the people that that I deal with are not, you know, serious criminals in that respect. Mm -hmm. Um but in, in direct answer to your question, I don't check. I don't really care um, because yeah. it's not their their family's fault what they did. And that's who I'm trying to help. Right, right, right. Good point. Uh, the, you, you obviously serve Montgomery County Jail. What other uh, jails do you provide services to? We, we primarily work with Montgomery County Jail because they are able to help us with the eligibility requirement. But we have done um, case on a case by case basis. We have helped inmates at both New River Valley Regional Jail mm -hmm. and Western Virginia Regional Jail in um, Salem mm -hmm. or in um, Dixie Caverns. But and what we do in those cases, we just don't have the funding now to really expand because those jails are so large. Um, but when we get a request, I canvass my board and see if they are willing to do a one time payment for an inmate based on the requests that we get. We've tried to, we're an all-female board at this point. So for those other facilities, we have tried to limit those to um, cases that are requests for women who need hygiene products. Mm -hmm. And so we've done that. Okay. Well, uh, one more time here on Buzz for Good, joined by Deanna Cox, who is director of the Inmate Family Assistance of the New River Valley. Are there any other uh, inmate family assistance nonprofits in our region? That you Not know? that I'm aware of. Okay. okay. I there are that. some. Mm -hmm. There like are Ro some. Roanoke Valley or Lynchburg, elsewhere. Yeah, I'm. I did check for our immediate area, and I did not find anything that does what we do. Even in Roanoke, I don't think there's an organization that's helping with funding inmate accounts. Mm -hmm. um, there is an, uh, a large organization that might be a national organization that does something similar for families. Um, and But they do something that I we've kind of considered, which is trying to help inmates um, get their children Christmas presents um, at Christmas, because that's one of the things that I've heard personally from inmates that one of their biggest regrets. Yeah. Um, about being incarcerated is that, you know, what they do when they let their children down. And um, so that's the only other organization that I'm aware of that's doing something to directly help the families. But I'm sure there are some right. nationwide. Right. Uh, you know, on our TV show, we recently did an episode on St. Francis Service Dogs, which provides mm -hmm. highly trained dogs to uh, typically special needs families, you know, who like help someone with special needs uh, walk or carry things or open doors, that that sort of thing. But uh, they have a wonderful partnership with Bland Correctional Center, because when these dogs are first weaned uh, for the first year of their life, they are placed with uh, an inmate at Bland Correctional, who then basically uh, does the beginning training and caring for them. Um, and, and it's just, a, I mean, you see the transformation that this program has had on the inmates at Bland Correctional and inevitably what they say is, um, it's wonderful being able to give back while I'm still incarcerated, uh, being able to feel like part of the community, uh, even though I'm, you know, behind bars. And I think we oftentimes forget about 
we have one image of what it is to be an inmate uh, without, and we kind of suddenly someone who commits a crime is somehow devoid of the humanity that uh, they deserve. And so I'm just really appreciative of, you know, the work that you're doing to try to keep that, um, that humanity nurtured and in you know, a burning while, you know, someone is behind bars. Right. Yeah. That's, and that's an amazing program that yeah. they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, someone who wants to get involved with your work, either supporting it locally or perhaps, uh, you know, wanting to see about doing something similar in another jurisdiction, uh, how would they do so? Um, well, they can go to our website, which is um, ifaofthenrv.com. And um, we also have a Facebook page. Uh, we have an email address, which is ifanrv at gmail.com. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> um, and you know, on the website is all of our contact information. So they can certainly give me a call um, to get information. We're, we're always looking for financial support. Um, one of the new initiatives, we've, we've talked with Mountain View Humane about partnering with them to come up with a subsidy for um, families who have um, loved ones incarcerated who need, need help with their pets' health needs. Hello. And they would come up with um, Mountain Valley. I mean, Mountain View Humane would come up with a um, particular rate schedule uh -huh. for participants in our program. And then we would potentially subsidize those rates by 50% or something. Wow. Um, yeah. For those who don't, don't know, Mountain View Humane is a spay and neuter clinic that has locations, I believe, not only in the New River Valley, but in the Roanoke Valley as well. That's correct. And they've also um, branched out and they're doing, you know, um, routine pet health care now. So um, what a great partnership. Yeah. So anyway, we're looking at some ways to to further our impact and um, help more families and indirectly help inmates who who I do think for the most part are, you know, redeemable people and yeah. um, and deserve to be treated like people and um I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not helping cute puppies and kittens, but I still think it's worthwhile. Right, right. Well, and, you know, you, you talk about recidivism and, um, you know, wanting, you know, if we believe in rehabilitation, if we don't want people to continue to go back into the correctional system and which is a, you know, a cost to taxpayers, if you want to look at it just from a financial standpoint, uh, you know, we, we've got to invest in the types of programs that you have uh, so that, you know, we can be a, a better, more wholesome society, I would argue. Yeah, um, I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So one more time, it's IFA, so inmate family assistance, but IFA of the NRV.com is your website. Uh, and so go there to find out more about the inmate family assistance of the NRV. Uh, once again, here with Deanna Cox, the director of the program, uh, who began this journey about, I guess, almost a little more than five years ago when her son was first uh, arrested for a DUI. And now you say he's been uh, alcohol free for about a year. How's he doing? I think he's doing pretty well. He's finally moved into an apartment by himself and um learning to be self-sufficient and responsible and all those things. He's 24 now. Mm -hmm. So um, we're still hopeful he's growing up and um, learning from mistakes. Um, you know, I, I had never had any experience with alcoholism before, but you know, it's, it's a tough nut to crack. So yeah. um, he's, it's an experience, a journey and he's, he's still on it. So. Well, Good luck to him. Good luck to you and the wonderful organization that you have created to help other families who find themselves in the difficult situation of having a loved one who has uh, made a poor choice, uh, been convicted of a crime and is having to spend time in jail and uh, additional punishments that come from that, you know, due to 
uh, our correctional system, which uh, uh, is designed in some respects to further punish people once they get there through just the high cost of, of being incarcerated. So thank you for all the work that you are doing. And I invite anyone who wants to find out more to once again, go to ifaofthenrv.com. Deanna Cox, Director of the Inmate Family Assistance of the New River Valley, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, it was my pleasure. Now we hope to one day feature Deanna and Inmate Family Assistance of the New River Valley on our TV show, Buzz. And if you're inspired to sponsor that episode or any other nonprofit, please reach out to me through our website or social media. Once again, buzzforgood.com, buzz, B-U-Z-Z, number four, good.com, as well as our social media, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, and YouTube, all at buzzforgood. Speaking of uh, episodes of our TV show, our newest episode of Buzz just aired January 25th on Blue Ridge PBS, starring Roanoke City Public Schools arts programs. And I'm going to play a snippet here that features a collection of Roanoke City elementary, middle, and high school students who came together last summer for a two-week arts camp to produce the musical Aladdin Jr. As I share on the show, the vision of the camp was to help Roanoke City Public School students stay better connected through the summer months. But as you can hear, the students ended up learning a lot more. My name is Cassidy Corker. I'm an eighth grader and I'm going to James Madison Middle School. Something that Aladdin has taught me is how to communicate, not exactly through words, but through actions. And something Aladdin has definitely taught me is timing and teamwork. What I've learned is emotions. like. What I learned is to have like facial expressions and to show yourself and who you are. Could we see a facial expression? <laughs> My name is Sophia and I'm going to Westina Elementary and what I learned is to meet new friends and how important this play is. My name is Walker Johnson. I'm going to be in fifth grade next year and I go to Crystal Spring Elementary School. And something I've learned in Aladdin is how to be in a group and meet new friends. One thing I learned at Aladdin Junior is how to be someone I'm not and have really fun with it. My name is Kanisha Jones. I'm going to eighth grade at James Madison Middle School and I learned to get more in tune with my character. Something I learned in Aladdin Jr. is to never make your back face the audience. That is one main thing. That's it. Hi, I am Jahara Miner. I attend James Madison Middle School and I'm going to April. Hi, my name is Callan Johnson. I will be going in the seventh grade at James Madison Middle School. My name is Taylor Helm. I'm in the sixth grade at James Madison Middle School. My first performance was at James Madison Middle School. It was a Matilda Junior musical, and I played um, Kelly, which was like a backup dancer, but technically a third grader. So it was, it was kind of brand new, you know, because I enjoy doing dancing. I'm not really like spotlight, you know, until now, until I'm jazzing. Funny enough, it was actually at James Madison Middle School. I was four years old, and I did Aladdin. I was playing the little monkey Abu. And it's like nice that I'm actually the main role in the show now, my first show, and I'm in the main role. It's, it's a dream come true. I was the lead dancer at Hairspray, and it just, ever since that, I love to act and dance. Um, before that, I started doing dance and ballet at three years old, and then I just um, adventured in more genres of dance, and then I started acting, and I love it. And what have you gained from being in drama? Confidence, lots and lots of confidence. And it helps a lot. Yeah, I think it's definitely helped me. I was I was probably a little, been a little shy, I think when I was four years old. So I think theater's helped me become the person who I am today. And it just like takes away all my problems. Do you have a lot of problems? Um, not really, but like sometimes, um, like school, um, just, Handling a lot of things gets me stressed, and acting just clears all of that. Cause I'm not good at like communicating with other children, and um, I don't know. I'm not really good at making friends and stuff. Cause I'm like scared to ask them like, "Do you want to be my friend?" You know. And but now I'm like, you know, I'm an actor, so might as well. 
dance, when I first started dance, it definitely helped me without being shy. Um, it helped me gain tons of confidence because I used to be a very quiet person and sometimes I still am because I'm not still comfortable with being a loud person, but I still can be a loud person because I get to express my feelings through dance and acting. Just helps me, you know, forget about everything. Like what? Like, you know, like um, family issues, grades, report card, um, <laughs> SOLs, you know, it was one of those random things. Uh, I would like to be an actor and a singer. My dream is to come on Broadway. <laughs> but yeah, I would say that I really just want to be on Broadway. I want to try my best. I'm going to go to a musical theater college and I mean, I'll, see where it, I'll see where it takes off. Now you can watch this episode in its entirety on our website, buzzforgood.com. Buzz, B-U-Z-Z, -Z, number four, good.com. Lastly on today's show, we are also buzzing about an upcoming event on February 7th at the Grandin Theater celebrating Christiansburg Institute. It was the subject of a special two-part episode of Buzz in August of 2021. It was founded in 1866 as one of the first schools for recently freed slaves and operated for 100 years, 20 of those years under the direct supervision of Booker T. Washington. In 1966, the school was finally closed once the powers that be decided to integrate schools. And so the black students who attended Christiansburg Institute were scattered amongst previously whites-only schools throughout Southwest Virginia. On February the 7th, we are partnering up with the Christiansburg Institute to show our episode at the Grandin Theater, followed by a panel discussion by the Christiansburg Institute. And you can find out more about this event at ChristiansburgInstitute.com. Here is an extended audio clip from part two of our episode that features several alumni of Christiansburg Institute, as well as some who wish they could have attended CI and become alumni themselves. So my name is Debbie Sherman Lee. I am the chair of Christiansburg Institute, Inc. I was able to go to Christiansburg Institute for one year, um, my eighth grade year in 1965-66. I'm, I'm Bob Lees from Parisburg, Virginia. I graduated in the class of 1948. I was president of the class, and I was also president of the student uh, body at the time. Hello, my name is Jessie Eves. I graduated the class of 1965. I'm a proud tiger. Uh, uh, the tiger was our mascot, and our colors were green and gold. And I'm very proud of our school, very proud of all of its accomplishments. Okay, my name is Walter Price. Uh, I went to CI from 1959 to 1964. My name is Shirley Johnson Akers, and I would have been a graduate of Christiansburg Industrial Institute in the year 1973. Okay, my name is Alan W. Palmer. I graduated from CI in 1961. I was born and raised here in Christiansburg, Virginia. Hi, my name is Karen Jones. I am the granddaughter of James Ed Jones Sr. Um, and Barbara Natalie Morgan Jones, who are graduates of Christiansburg Institute. My aunt, Sandra Dooley, graduated from Christiansburg Institute. And um, my aunt, Patricia Jones, and my dad, um, James Jones Jr., all attended um, either Friends Elementary or um, Christiansburg Institute. I am Kenneth B. Wright. I graduated in 1959 from Christiansburg Institute. So today we're sitting in the Hill School Community Center and this is actually a really special place to me. It was built um, in 1866 um, as really the first um, building for what would become Christiansburg Institute. Um, so at its core, it has always been a center of our community and education has always been a piece of that. Um, so it's just this really phenomenal place that when you walk into it, you know that you're kind of walking in the footsteps of greatness. We, we only went to 10 grades in Parisburg and uh, the county wouldn't pay for blacks getting an education beyond the 10th grade. Well, in those days you needed 11 grades in order to get your diploma. So most of the students there who 
needed, uh, we wanted to go to college, went to either Genoa in uh, Bluefield, West Virginia, or Lucy Addison in Roanoke, RCII. I was rather small, but I wanted to be part of the football team. So uh, my eighth grade year, I started as a trainer, uh, manager of the football team. And all I did was, you know, get water for them. And on Thursday nights, I'd take the football cleats of a couple of players and take them home, shine them up, <laughs> and bring them back for Friday's game. And uh, I did that. and. I, uh, I used that as a crutch. All the girls thought I was playing football. <laughs> and they'd ask me, well, we didn't see you on the field. I said, well, I've been injured, you know, because I, I had a jersey and everything. <laughs> My first memory of CI was the marching band. Seeing the drum majors and the long striding steps and the band and, and this the jovial community that that marching band had. Um, a lot of the teachers taught things that my sisters would bring home and show me. Um, they had classes in sewing. They, they made hats. I'm not talking about this, the little cap. They made actual beautiful hats that they sell in the stores now, two, three, four hundred dollars. And this was skills that they bought home and showed me and skills that I wanted to learn also. You know, we had home ec at Christiansburg High School, but it was nowhere close to what we had at Christiansburg Institute. I was a member of the forensic club. I was Miss Cheerleader, finished fourth in my class. Um, we had lots of activities. Loved my teachers. We had great teachers. Had Mr. Carr for biology and Mr. Holmes for government, um, Miss Clemens for English, Miss Charlton for French. But one of the things I remember about my French class was Miss Charlton used to always tell me, Jesse Eves, you cannot look pretty and speak French. So she would say, say, parlez-vous Francais. And, uh, and she said, and you have to tear up that face when you say it. I was also the pump house boy. After one o'clock lunch, I had to go over the hill about a mile, mile and a half, and turn the pump, turn the pump on. About 12 o'clock uh, that night, I had to go over the hill and turn the pump off. Okay, and what made that outstanding was that now I'm coming back from the pump house at 12 o'clock, turning the pump off, but I had to get up at four to get my furnaces going. And that was back in the days when you used the shovel and the shovel, you shoveled the coal and all that. Because you see, the girl they had breakfast at seven o'clock, and you can't have those girls getting up there in the morning in the cold. <laughs> Well, we had classes like chemistry, physics, um, industrial arts, bricklaying, carpentering, barbering, um, mathematics, of course, algebra. Which mathematics, I was I was very very poor at <laughs> mathematics, but I enjoyed, of course, the uh, the, the the liberal arts uh, uh, seemed to have attracted me. The fellowship the discipline, respect. Those are the things I enjoyed, took from CI. You had respect for your teachers, your fellow band, your fellow classmates. Christiansburg Institute was like a junior college, I guess. We had different buildings when I was there. We had the Home Economics Building. Ms. Chappelle was our teacher. So we had uh, cooking classes, we had first aid classes, we had sewing classes in that one building. And in the next building over from the Home Economics Building was the barbering building and the cosmetology building. Uh, Mr. Graves taught the, cos taught the barbering class and um, Miss Amanda Dehart taught cosmetology. You, learn, you, you learned to work hard. I mean, everything that you uh, were faced with you know, when, 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 um, when the problems appeared, instead of backing down, you stepped up. The guys went in one side of the building, the girls went in the other side. We expected to be there on time. You didn't allow the gag in between classes because sometimes you had to go from the gym, which had classrooms in it, over to the long building. They expected a lot of 
lot out of you back in the day. You know, you, you're supposed to be a gentleman, you know, and, and I expect you ripping, running up and down the hallways. Oh, some people did, you know, but they, they were disciplined for it. But other than that, you know, I can truly say it was, it was a good school. And uh, when you left there, you were prepared for just about anything you wanted to do. I thought. Did you and your classmates at CI miss CI? Yes. Yes, definitely miss CI. Because we knew, again, we knew that um, we had to do the work, but we knew that the teachers cared. Um, they took it up a level, they, they cared, but again, they were strict. They wanted us to be able to be able to support a family. Every day I wish I went to Christiansburg Institute. It was a dream of mine. That was the one thing that I truly wanted to do because I wanted that education, I wanted that training, I wanted that connection that my sisters had and my father and them had at that school because it's not like you're just going to attend and nobody knows who you are. You know, there's a little thing out there, go where everybody knows your name. Well, there they knew your name, they knew your family, they knew your history. So it really would have meant a lot to been able to attend uh, CII. I miss that I didn't have the opportunity to kind of create those lifelong memories and lifelong bonds um, with a lot of folks. Even though I knew what the purpose of integration was, I just thought it was, um, it was, it was unfortunate that the integration couldn't have worked in the opposite direction for us. Um, that, that the whites could have been integrated with us because we had the better school. I was hoping they would put some money into the school and, and to maintain the school. But after integration, I don't think the counties were willing to put the money into it. They just, it was, the, well, the integration came in and it was a different, it was a different ball game. When they integrated schools, that should have been the school that should have, it's where they should have gone because it had, had so much potential, it had everything there, you know. We had the newest gym, you know, and plenty of room for everybody. It wasn't overcrowded or anything. I wish that they had left us alone. I, I, I hate to say this, I know integration supposedly was supposed to be this great thing, but when I saw integration with me going to Christiansburg High School, I saw a lot of the young men that I would have graduated with being kicked out of school, being expelled, being uh, put in you know other classes or whatever, and set on the path for failure. And that's what I saw. So, you know, the education that you got there was great. You can look at the doctors, the lawyers, the preachers, the teachers that came out of CI. And I know there they came out with great things also, but it's just, like I said, it was just the love that they had for us that really propelled us. And we would have been still supporting that school. So uh, when they did the desegregation, uh, it was hard. Um, to keep up with everyone because we couldn't see everyone. So when you came to CI, everybody was just there from all over Pulaski, Radford, Giles, Withville, all over uh, the New River Valley and beyond. So the experience at Christiansburg High School was different. I think being one of only a few black students definitely makes a difference. Um, I know from, you know, kindergarten through at least the eighth grade. For the majority of the time, I would be the only black student in my class. I don't think they um, get, for the most part, gave the, the black students enough credit as to what they could do. You know, you were always put in, probably in um, the lower classes. Going to an integrated school was very hard. Um, the reason it was hard was because I was always the only African-American person in my class. You were looked at as if you were beneath any and everybody else or that you weren't as smart. I'll phrase it like that. They didn't think that I had the intelligence to strive and to grow. 
and to mature and become, you know, what the people at Christiansburg Institute had always acknowledged that we could be, be the top, be the top. It's worth preserving today, the history is worth preserving today because it presents a mindset of, of resilience to, um, to oppression. Uh, but what little bit we have left, I'd, I'd like to see it preserved and, and, and serve as a museum piece, if nothing else. But, uh, you know, because of the, the history behind it. Because if it wasn't for CI, I, we probably wouldn't have any formal education, so to speak. Most, most of the little schools that they had, they only went to about the seventh grade, I think. I would like for them to know about the pageantry, the pomp and circumstance, the pride, um, the degree of education strength that we received from the teachers that were there at that school. Um, they were all just awesome teachers and, and for they know your family, they made sure that you were gonna be an awesome person and graduate coming out of that school. It's just really important that we maintain our history um, and tell it the way that we know that it needs to be told and understood. Um, and I feel like, and I, I firmly believe that um, if I don't do that, if I don't show like a passion for that, then others may not either. And so definitely being from the community, Christiansburg is my home. So how could I not want to make sure that this goes on forever? Above and beyond uh, the building, I believe that uh, we need to spend more time on helping to get the story, the story of, of, of resilience, the story of, of excellence, and the story of fair treatment among, among uh, uh, human beings, but I think being able to preserve what went on and how people were impacted, how their souls were enriched, uh, is far more important than, than preserving a building and the land, although it, it hurts me not to see it intact but I think some other things will come out of it that will be far more valuable and impactful. You know, so it, 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 was, a, it was a place to be remembered. It really is. Yeah, and uh, I, I tell you, <laughs> excuse me, I really get filled up thinking about it. It means that much to me. It really does. Why? It's... I had fun there. I learned. I learned how to deal with other people. I know when I went to the military, uh, it was easy for me because I knew how to deal with other people, you know. It wasn't the same people all the time, you know. So it it's it's really squared you up for for life. And that really means a lot. I apologize. <laughs> but it's 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 to the heart. So I hope to see you February 7th at the Grandin Theater for the CI fundraiser. And once again, find out more at ChristiansburgInstitute.com. And speaking of websites, you can stay connected with us throughout the week at BuzzForGood.com. Buzz, B-U-Z-Z, number four, good.com. 
Thank you so much for tuning in to our Buzz for Good radio show, and we hope that you will continue being a Buzz for Good in your community throughout the week. Look forward to seeing you next time. Bye now.